Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. Raphael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Scott. It is a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's so funny because we talk all the time. Uh, full disclosure, you're a good friend of mine from the weird reality that is something called Clubhouse, which if you don't know, I mean, do you have this experience? It's a social audio app and you're an Orthodox rabbi, which means, you know, you're in the minority in everything in the United States. Do you, when people, do you ever talk about this app and try to explain it and what it is to, to people that are on it? Have you had that experience? I've had the experience a few times. I discovered the app really from a friend of mine who is also an Orthodox rabbi who sent me a link back in the days when each invitation, each invite was a special thing. That person stopped using the app a few years ago already. I still like the app as a window just to hear what's going on and to meet people that I otherwise would not meet in my life. My life right now as an Orthodox rabbi in an Orthodox shul is dealing with Orthodox Jews about 100% of the day, with the exception of the occasional appointments at doctors or dentists' offices or, uh, you know, going to the mechanic. So please, please tell me you're not a going, nice thing. You're not going to Gentile doctors or dentists, right? You were talking receptionists or something <laughs> like that, right? I mean, a Gentile that's, mechanic. That's a is, good point. It's fine. My, but my I mean, doctor, my doctor is also an Orthodox Jew, so that gets rid of that. That's right. And for a long time, my mechanic was also an Orthodox Jew. Not. I mean, this is how I have structured my life, and I love it. But I just feel that there are times where I have what. I th- I think not just me, Orthodox Judaism, Judaism, the Torah, but me as well, I as well, have what to talk uh, with, have what to talk about to the world at large. So I like a little bit of a window into the world uh, at large, to Jews who are not observant and who would like to hear, would like to have a connection, even though just a conversational connection with an Orthodox rabbi. I've met some of the people on the app, not too many, but I've met a few of them already. Someone actually came, to, was visiting Cleveland and stopped in my shul. I've met others when I was in New York a couple of years ago. I appreciate that opportunity, and I think that the people who I've met and I've interacted with have also appreciated the opportunity to meet with me, something that they wouldn't have done in their ordinary IRL in real life circles. That that's what I have to say about that. Look, as an Orthodox rabbi, right, and we're talking about stereotypes, right? That you right. know, but IRL's pretty hip. I mean, you're saying pretty hip things. I mean, these are <laughs> you, you know, know. I, <laughs> already as an Orthodox rabbi, you should know in in the in the Orthodox Jewish world, if somebody prefaces an article or a statement by saying as an Orthodox rabbi, you know they're about to talk nonsense. 
those are the articles. <laughs> you could look it up. You could Google it. Type, as an Orthodox rabbi, I believe, and then you'll just see some of the weirdest stuff that people want to promote and suggest that it's okay for an Orthodox rabbi to think those things. So it's an old joke that a friend of mine who lives in Israel, Rabbi Ellie Fisher, has said. He said, as an Orthodox rabbi, I will never start an article with the words as an Orthodox rabbi, because it's a, it's a red flag. <clears throat> so I'm just using that now to describe why it is that I appreciate a little bit of outside contact, just so that the world should, uh, should know, and Jews, and but non-Jews alike, who I've interacted with, should have a little bit of a taste of the reasonableness that is... Uh, Orthodox Judaism, even though it's often not portrayed as being something reasonable in the uh, in the world media. No, this is interesting to me. It, it's it's always interesting. By the way, can I? It, I find it almost harder to have these kind of conversations with people I know because uh, most of my podcast interviews are with strangers that I've picked up the book of the podcast, so I know you pretty well. But but that is interesting to me because you and I kind of talk about religion in the modern world and. When you say people view this as unreasonable, what do you mean? Can can you give me some examples of beliefs or practices that you think most people think are just unreasonable? I think in the world of – I think – let me process this. I think efforts have been made over the course of the last few years to portray Orthodox Judaism as being far more reasonable than people used to think. So I think that has changed. There have been – there's one effort. There's a woman in New York – who started a website which which developed into a movement called Jew in the City, which I think has had a very positive effect on the world at large. There's a woman here in Cleveland who I know uh, who started an Instagram account called Faces of Orthodoxy, which has also played a major role in making people see Orthodox Judaism as being reasonable, and I think that's been very helpful. But I think that when people see the different way that Orthodox Jews dress, let's say both men and women, or the way that they carry on their relationships, the different way that the relationship between the sexes that exists in the Orthodox world, that there isn't as much social mingling between men and women, that our marriages and our relationships that lead to marriage are considerably different from what is out there in, in the popular culture, I think those are things that people would find unusual, if not unreasonable. Rabbi, so the two, ability two, to talk to people. Two things helps. you just mentioned seem very reasonable to me. You wear black, that's slimming, and <laughs> you, you love someone, and it's much harder for her to get another guy's phone number. Um, these <laughs> things all seem to make a lot of sense to me. Someone was just asking me about the whole dressing in black and white you know, even Orthodox Jews amongst themselves will refer to the penguin look, you know, every so often. And I have to, you know, give some background to explain that it's really not as big of a deal as people think. People joke, why do you have to dress that way? And it's like, I don't have to dress this way. The community doesn't have to dress this way. You it's could a wear certain, a leisure suit, right, if you wanted a to. Certain, I mean, it's when, a cultural yeah. affectation that parts of the Orthodox community have had this past century to sort of be more limited in, in their colors. There's nothing biblical about it. There's nothing even particularly rabbinical about it. It just seems to be the way that the community evolved over the past century. It's not that big of a deal. On the other hand, I'm not interested in 
shaking people up by dressing in other colors because I'm not interested in making waves in that way. I would rather make waves with what I say than the fact that I decide to dress up in some sort of, you know, purple or green, you know, outfit. So, yeah, I wear, I wear, I wear the colors, but it, I really don't see it as defining me internally. But I do believe that clothing have an important role to play in how one portrays oneself to society at large. And it's not just a matter of conformity, but I think it's a natural human tendency to want to have a sense of comfort with the community around oneself in uh, how one dresses. My The head of my yeshiva, uh, my the title is Rosh Yeshiva, I went to Nair Israel in Baltimore. I once heard him comment, he was being facetious and it was very funny. He said, isn't it an amazing coincidence that when the hippie movement started in the late 60s and they wanted to flout convention and reject conform the conformity of the mode of dress at the time, that they all coincidentally chose to dress the same in the way that they were unconventional. You know, with the whole tie-dyed look or, you know, long hair, like all of the things that they did then. Meaning even in the anti-conformity argument that they were making back in the late 60s, they ended up coming around to a conformity of their own, you know, within a matter of weeks or months, you know, at the time. So that's just, uh, it's a convention, but it's nothing that I take too seriously. I would be just as Jewish and just as caring about the Torah <laughs> and Judaism if the, if the colors of the movement were orange, if orange became the new black, so to speak then that would be fine. I could live with that uh, just fine. Yeah, this is what's interesting to me about you. You you have a cultural literacy, literacy that stretches across a lot of things, politically, culturally. Uh, you know, you're, you're making orange as new black references. I mean, these are things. <laughs> not, silly throwaway line, but yeah. Now, can I ask you to tell a story? Um, again, we're friendly. I call, So I don't, you know, I, I I'm pretty... Uh, Jewish friendly in my um, cultural assumptions, but uh, like, but you, you, you've, you've promoted me once in a while when I say something that's like particularly Jewish, but I call you at time. I just don't know the prayer schedule and I call you at all sorts of weird <laughs> times. Right. And I call you, called you at dinner time once. And uh, this is unusual. Can you just tell that story? Sure. <laughs> well, yeah, you do have a tendency. Uh, it's an amazing tendency that you'll just randomly call me right when I'm in shul, you know, doing the afternoon service, you know, mincha. And it's like, how did he, did he sense that it was sunset in Cleveland? <laughs> that's when he's calling me. So that's pretty funny. And I've, I've, my, I don't bring my phone with me to, into the, uh, into the sanctuary when I'm davening, even during the week. So I only see the missed call later. <clears throat> but at one point you called, uh, during dinner and, we really make an effort not to answer the phone at dinner time. So our phones are not near us. They're like over on a corner counter. And the phone rang once and one of my kids, my 10-year-old, I think, got up and was walking just to see who was calling. And the caller ID, it said, Scott Jones. And my daughter was like, Scott Jones? Like, what is what kind of name is that? You know, it was like the most insane name she had ever heard. Like, like, is that even real? You know, it was, it was, 
it was funny. It was like, how do you explain why someone named Scott Jones is calling me? You know, it was, I, I couldn't think of a more culturally unusual name that was for my daughter, <laughs> you know, than, than anything else. It might have well as been, you know, Mohammed Mustafa. Like it just, it was so outside of our, you know, cultural circle. Which I found so, adorable. So what did you, what did you say? Did you say this is a friend of mine? I mean, how did that? Did, was there an ensuing? Yeah, I really. Yeah. It was the fact that she said it was funnier, and I just said oh, it was just a friend of mine, and and that was it. Yeah, it wasn't a big deal. It, no one was suspicious. It wasn't like creepy or anything. It was, it was just a funny moment. Uh, that's all, and it ended up not being a big deal at all. So let's imagine I come to your house for dinner, right? Scott Jones, IRL, as they say. Uh, well, how do you think your kids, your kids would react? Somebody that's not in the Orthodox cultural world, like how would that? I mean, would that be like a field day kind of dinner, or what, what would that? What would that look like? Do you think? <laughs> I don't think it would be unusual. I would say that the reason why it might be more unusual now is because the nature of my shul and my community is far more insular than it was when I was a rabbi in Virginia. I was a rabbi in Newport News, Virginia for five years. This is going back 20 years back from 01 to 06. And the community, there was no Orthodox community to speak of. There was an Orthodox synagogue, but most of the people who attended were themselves not uh, Orthodox observant. So we had people all the time from the community at large in our home having meals with us, Shabbos, Jewish holiday meals, Yontif meals, and that was fine. My kids understood that. My younger children who were born where I am now haven't seen it as much. So maybe it would be take just a little bit of an explanation that, you know, I know people who are who are not from and it wouldn't be a big deal. It, it Maybe it might just require an explanation. Oh, this is a friend of mine. And then that would be it. It wouldn't be. It would not be a big deal. I promise you. Well, I, I'll tell and, you what. And, and invite I would, it to dinner. And I wouldn't bring pork chops or anything like that. I would be very That's sensitive. Right. Well, yeah. No outside food anyway in our home. Exactly. Even among people. Yeah. Exactly. So that's fine. Don't worry about that. So, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so, do you think this kind of insensitivity or curiosity or, frankly, maybe indignation about, oh, my gosh, these Orthodox people, this is uh, this is nonsensical. Do you think this is – you're just previewing what – religion is going to be in the West for most people. I mean, I, I heard you in our clubhouse app discussions give dating advice, which seemed to me completely rational. And people thought, and these were Jews, and they thought you were almost from Mars. I mean, but don't you, th do you think this is going to be the way for religious people in an increasingly secular age? Well, what I've observed, I've observed two opposing tendencies in the West you know, in the internet West, if you will, or the regular West in the, over the course of the past generation. I've noticed a certain class of people that are moving farther and farther from any religious assumptions that ran the world for thousands of years, where they think that even the most innocuous, normal Western modes of behavior are insane and practically fascist. On the other hand, I have noticed that people who are not even Jewish, or some of them are Jewish, but utterly non-observant, or, like I said, people who are not Jewish, have come around in many individual instances 
or with specific issues and have basically come around to what was or to what is the halachic, meaning the Jewish traditional position on a lot of issues. And I'm amazed to discover this because they seem to have sort of rediscovered certain truths all their own. So when I made a comment uh, on the app a little while ago that if people had their heads on straight and they didn't want to waste their time with the insanity and the unhealthy toxic results of a hookup culture and just decided that they want to get married and are looking for someone to marry who is compatible with them, then the entire dating process from meet up to engagement would take no longer than three months. And a lot of the people in that conversation actually agreed with me. There was one person who was like, well, that's that." It just doesn't work that way. But none of the number of the people, Jewish, not Jewish, were actually giving me thumbs up. They fully understood what I was talking about, meaning they recognized that something has happened in the West over the course of the past 20 or 30 or maybe 40 years that encourages these kinds of casual relationships. And women especially have, many women have come around to realize that those casual relationships are doing them no favors whatsoever. And they appreciated that point that all it would take is a matter of a few months and none of these stories that sometimes you see online of someone proposing after dating for six years or three years, you know, or things like that. So that's a traditional Jewish and then, position. And, and, and then two years and, to plan the wedding, right? I mean – Oh, yeah. It's insane. Yes. We were actually in uh, Charleston, South Carolina recently. And we were at a plantation called the Boone Plantation, which is a beautiful area with stunning rows of oak trees. And they said, and the person giving the tour said that it, this is considered a beautiful wedding venue, but that the, the, the waiting list to get a date for, to reserve this place for a wedding is two or three years. So they said, we recommend reserving the place first and then meeting someone because I guess their tour guide at least thought that that makes sense that from the time you meet someone to the time you get married will take less than three years. However, it seems that for some, they're going out for two or three years, then there's a year or two of an engagement, something which doesn't at all fit uh, a, you know, a Torah lifestyle. Rabbi, I mean, I'm uh, unaffiliated right now, unattached. Did you put my name in or no? <laughs> I think the the cost to reserve that place is. Uh, <laughs> you you, you know, think it would be something. bad stewardship? Yeah, b- bad stewardship. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, so so I one thing I, I've been thinking about as we've talked about having this conversation uh, since 1940s, the world has seen Jews at war. Right. I mean, that's a relatively unusual thing in the history of modern culture, you know, post 70 AD or something, you just don't, you know, Jews at a state at war. Uh, This war has been, uh, I I mean, what started October 7th, this is the most Jews that have been killed since the Holocaust in one day. This is, it would would be 50,000 people if it was America, right? Which would make nine 11 pale by comparison. I mean, is to overnight, you've had to be a rabbi in wartime. I mean, there's always low-level wars with Israel and its neighbors because of of, right. of of issues in the Middle East, but 
but this is a hot war. And has that, I mean, what's it like being a, a rabbi in wartime? I had a similar experience after 9-11. 9-11 was three weeks after, or three and a half weeks after I took my first position as a rabbi. I was wet behind the ears. I was all of 26 years old. And all of a sudden, I was called upon to give the Jewish perspective on the fact that the world has changed so radically. And the it was shocking, and I was just, I was floored, meaning the, the 9-11 experience was utterly devastating to me, and I had to find a place in my head, you know, to make sense of it all. This experience, however, is different because for most American Jews, the realization of the opposition to Jews and the Jewish state that has been seen in so much of the West has caused a radical shift to a position that I think has been the Orthodox, or at least the traditional Jewish position all along. I'll explain what I mean. You Jews of all types have had to come to terms with our host countries over the course of the last 2,000 years. What do they think of us? What do we think of them? Do they like us? Yes, they do like us, or they hate us. And then over the course of the last 200 years or so, there's been a general take that, hey, you know, as long as we behave normally, as long as they behave normally, we live in an enlightened world right now, we can get along. We just have to behave. I'm sure they'll behave. Of course, the main exception to this was the Holocaust, where we saw what Western European culture was willing to do to the Jews. But even then, that was seen as a kind of anomaly, and that the world learned their lesson. But when we saw the reaction that people all over the world, people that good lowercase l, liberal Jews, appreciated that, oh, we're on the same page, we accept your premises, you accept our premises, we're able to get along. And the response of the world to October 7th that occurred on October 7th and October 8th just shook so many Jewish people. It was like a knock in the head because even though there were obviously some very strong words of support that came from some circles, the words of attack upon us from people who we thought were our friends, not at the end of October or beginning of November when Israel began to push back and attack Gaza, but even beforehand was just so disheartening that many traditional Jews who had been of the opinion of saying, listen, deep down, there are parts of the world you think they're our friends, but they're not our friends. When push comes to shove, it's it has to be us versus them, meaning we can't see them as our friends because they will they object to us. They they object to our connection to the Holy Land. They object to any overt Jewish presence and their you know intersectionality would you know throw us back in the gas chambers tomorrow if they could. Led many Jews to say, you know what, those Jews who were afraid or who were 
suspicious of their friends at Harvard and, you know, higher level, the, the centers of higher education, higher in air quotes, uh, education, <laughs> these are not our friends. They have views that are not friendly to us. There's been a certain kind of vindication of that in, in the course of the past uh, few months. I'm not happy with that vindication. Some, you know, it's the, like the kind of thing when you warn someone about, you know, a potential enemy and they say, oh, you're overreacting. And then that person goes and then attacks you. Sure, I can say, see, I told you so. But if the see, I told you so comes at the expense of, you know, 1,200 innocent victims and 250 hostages and, you know, all of that insane brutality. And then all the gaslighting that happened afterwards where people are claiming that it never happened. It's, it's just an awful, awful feeling. And we say, I told you so, but I'm not at all happy to say, uh, I told you so, because I myself didn't want to believe it. So I've been thinking about uh, this uh, atrocity of October 7th every day. And, and I hang out with a lot of, with, you know, mostly progressives and mm-hmm. I, so I, I came up with something and see if this is fair. I mean, I what I've learned from my feminist friends in sexual assault and things is basically my assessment of a lot of the mainstream media and the left's coverage of this is basically saying, yeah, but what was Israel wearing? Yeah, the victim blaming line, exactly right. It's uh, <clears throat> it's it's an argument that I, I don't know how else to put it. It's it's so. Is the word devaluing? I'm not, I don't know if that's the word. Meaning of saying that there is, you know, you've they've created this narrative called colonialism, and they decided that their their opposition to colonialism starts in 1948, even though the world, the planet, is full and has been full of colonialism since the very beginning. Meaning, people move. They migrate, they move from one country to another country, and that's life. And sometimes they have military superiority, and then they take over that country. And sometimes the minority remains, sometimes it gets swallowed up, sometimes they move. There are all sorts of colonial difficulties that have occurred. The biggest one of which in the last 2,000 years was the Arab colonial experiment, which took this, these tribes from Arabia and spread them all over the Middle East and Southern Europe and Northern Africa. And yet we seem to have decided that that's okay because that happened a long time ago. But any newer form of colonialism over the last 300 years or 500 years is something that's inherently immoral. I'm not saying that every time you move somewhere you're allowed to do it, but I'm just saying it's the reality of the human condition. And this is pretty – I mean, come on, Rabbi Ray – by by world standards, this kind of colonialism, this is the colonial power saying, hey, we want to be nicer. This is British hospitality. We're going to divide up the region, right? I mean, as best we can right. see fit. I mean, it's not as though uh, – I mean, this is not Genghis Khan or the Roman Empire coming in and saying this is a messy relationship it's, that getting sorted yeah, out with colonial powers stepping back from an area that was controlled by a colonial power itself. Right. That's why I'm, I'm, I happen to be upset. I don't want to dwell on it. 
But I think one of the changes in language that has occurred since October 7th is people on that progressive pro-Palestinian left have been far more willing to just use the term Palestine, which was not done previously. I, I feel that people were able to say, listen, there was never any such thing as Palestine, meaning it's not colonial. We're not talking about how Belgium treated the Congo and was responsible for the deaths and torture of millions in the 1800s. This is, we're going to a place that was under the control of the Ottoman Empire. We were purchasing land from people who were willing to sell their land voluntarily. You had, and there was no distinct Palestinian identity. There was obviously an Arab identity over that entire region. And then there was a decision made by one colonial power that was taking over from another colonial power to give a sliver of this land back to people who had a connection going back, you know, thousands of years. So it doesn't at all match the anti-colonial narrative that the West has. However, they chose to impose that anti-colonial narrative upon the Jews. And that has been, you know, with, I think, awful consequences, which allows them to refuse to just accept the situation and uh, and move on, you know. Even people who are not at all traditional, you know, like Bill Maher, <laughs> you know, have come around brilliantly in the last, you know, few months of saying you're imposing this kind of anti-colonialist talk or anti-imperialist talk, and it just doesn't fit the facts at all. Rabbi, but more importantly... Rabbi, Rabbi yeah, I just want to... Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but don't you think this is often the case with ideology? You have God which I think, you know, I know you believe in and you believe that God made the creation. And I, I often find, isn't it the case that the creation is so much more complex than ideology, right? I mean, it, it often, it often creation often resists the, I, I feel like ideology doesn't have to go far to always become idolatry, right? I think there are ideologies that are in place that are almost tailor-made to oppose the Jews. Like, I, I, one line that I sort of conjured up myself a few years ago, and I shared with people in the show, I said, there was a principle in the laws and customs of warfare, going back to the dawn of humanity, that to the victor go the spoils. If you win the war, you get to keep the land that you won in that war, especially if you were the one who was invaded, and then you get to do with it what you wish. And I said, this was a universal standard of all wars until June 5th, 1967. Then the world decided that that would no longer apply, meaning with the Six-Day War. And what we have here with what happened on October 7th is they decided to prorate that, meaning move it back to May 1948. But this was the standard of how nations deal with one another. You attack us, we fight back, we take a piece of your land. Look at what Europe looks like today and compare that to a map of Europe in 1938 or 1937 and you'll see exactly what I mean. But these are political points that I try not to dwell on in shul because in general the Jewish community, the from Jewish community already feels this way. So I don't really have to emphasize these points, meaning I'm, you know, like the old expression goes, preaching to the choir. Like if I felt that I had to speak every week about how we're right and how we were mistreated and what, what look it, what, what they did what, to us. When you look at, 
there's something when a, when a clergy person looks at their congregation, right? And you see their eyes and you know, some of their stories, many of their stories, because you're the rabbi. When you look into their eyes um, and services, what is the biggest? What do you think? Um, Cause most people, I think go to religious services. They're almost walking on glass to get there because their lives are busy and they come hungering for something. I mean, what, what hunger do you see in the eyes that, that you feel like you have to address? Hmm. That's a really good question. Maybe I should think about that question more often. <laughs> I, I think that in in my world, the people who are coming to shul are coming to shul because of a certain habituation. So they might not be coming for hunger. We just realize that that's what it is that we're supposed to do. Meaning we're supposed to connect with our fellow Jews. We're supposed to connect with with God. And the way that we do it is by coming to shul on a regular basis. Those who have the schedules that permit them to do so are in shul seven days a week. And those who have to get to work or are still at work and can't come for the daily services, so they'll be there on Shabbos. But this is their connection. This is how they maintain their connection uh, to Judaism. So I have to think about what would be the most relevant thing that they would want to hear or that I feel that they need to hear. And I think of it that way. Maybe we should be coming to Shul thinking, oh, I hunger for something, you know, and use that very powerful word. You know, I'm coming because I hunger. But I haven't haven't thought that way. And I don't think you're asking anything wrong. Maybe it's a fault in me that I I don't think uh, along those lines. Like, just like sometimes people eat even before they feel hungry because they realize it's breakfast time, it's lunch time, it's dinner time. I'm not that hungry. So what? This is what I need to do. Meaning this is how, uh, this is how I live. Meaning this is the rhythm of, of my life. Just like all life has a rhythm, right? Blood pressure rhythm, breathing rhythm, heart rate rhythm, all of that. So too, a human life and certainly a Jewish life, should have a rhythm to it as well. And that rhythm is, you know, coming to shul, learning Torah, uh, involvement in the different mitzvot, right, the different commandments that we have. And this is the way that the Jewish people uh, connect to one another and, uh, and connect to God. So when they are coming to shul, or just as when I am coming to shul, the idea is, uh, what do they need more of in the rhythm of, of their life, meaning they need to hear not just the same words, but they, they should hear some element of wisdom that is different than the wisdom that they heard yesterday or different than the, from the wisdom they heard last week. I'll tell you something that happened in my shul years ago that made me so proud of the people in, in my shul, in my congregation. And it's a pride that I have to this day. I was away for a Shabbos. Wherever it was, I don't even remember anymore. I was away with my family. And I thought, well, when I'm away, a Jewish service, a Shabbos morning service, just like a weekday service, can occur without a sermon. A sermon is not a necessary component of the structure of the service. So I thought, I'll go away and I'll give them a week off, meaning there will be no sermon that Shabbos morning that I'm away. And they'll, they'll get a break. Well, when I came back, many people approached me, people who were in charge, people who weren't in charge. And they said, Rabbi, we, we got a lot of complaints last week. What was the complaint? There was no, there was no sermon. 
meaning people wanted to hear a Torah thought. They wanted to hear some kind of innovative or innovative or original thought related to it could have been anything. It didn't have to You're be You're not replaceable about, by Chat GPT. Right. Exactly. Or or just by the various publications that people put out on the table outside of Shul with different Torah thoughts from different rabbis. They wanted to hear it. And even if it wasn't you, meaning they like hearing me, but they wanted to hear something. They wanted something to enrich their lives for that Shabbos. Something they could bring home with them, share with the family that maybe didn't come to Shul, share some kind of unique Torah thought. And they missed that. And ever since that occurred, I've had to make the effort to find someone like a substitute teacher, so to speak, meaning somebody who would, who will speak to, uh, to the congregation that Shabbos morning. They, they want to hear it. And I, I just think that is a, uh, that is a wonderful thing. So there's that hunger. I suppose you could call it a hunger, meaning they, they want, you know, they want to be intellectually enhanced in some spiritual way I, you know I, that's what i tried to provide for them i came across a book the other day in a church library and uh, church libraries are funny things right because these books you know the committee buys books or whatever and they just sit there and no one reads them <laughs> and they sit on shelves and collect us but uh i'd actually heard this guy speak for Lou- lloyd ogilvie i think he's a presbyterian wonderful bass voice that you know that and he, I think he was the Senate chaplain for a little while or something. And the title of the book of his sermons was The Bush is Still Burning. And I thought, that's good, right? I mean, that'll preach, that dog will hunt, right? I mean, this is, I mean, because, you know, I think when, I feel like when most people go to churches, at, at, at most congregations, and I think this is probably true in most schools, the last thing they think is they're going to hear God, right? <laughs> they're going to hear the rabbi. They're going to hear the prayers. They're going to hear the, the you know, but I mean, holy smokes. Yeah, I, I, I love that story because it's sort of like, this is the worst. You're tending sheep. You were the prince of Egypt. Now you're tending your father-in-law's sheep, right? I mean, this seems like, I mean, this is not a great life, right? I mean, you're, you know, and then all of a sudden as you're tending the father-in-law's sheep, God speaks, the bush still burns. I mean, how do, I mean, how do you, when God speaks, and I don't experience this, I have mystic friends who I really do believe in different traditions, but I mean, how do people get ready for that? How can you prepare for, and I don't believe just because God's not speaking in those kinds of demonstrative, weird, strange ways, God's not speaking, but how do you learn to hear the voice of God? I mean, it's it, it seems to me like, an inc- especially in modernity, when you, you have phones and podcasts and this and Tinder and all that, I mean... How do you, how do you hear the voice of God? So there is a difficulty that I think is resolved by what to me is the most important part of my life, which is a common Jewish theme, which is learn what we call learning Torah. Learning is a very ordinary word. It, it's, it has a different connotation from, like, say, studying. But when Torah is being learned, and by Torah, I don't just mean the five books of Moses, and I don't just mean the Bible. We mean, when a Jew says Torah, he means the entire corpus of the relationship and the books that record that relationship, including what the rabbis have to say about it, from the Talmud all the way until, you know, today. 
I, I, I don't mean. When I, mean, I have these I, books, I, I don't mean to interrupt. This you. is the way that God talks to us. I, I, I just want to ask you a question. You can go on. So I don't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. Um, yeah. But do you mean that if you're going to just open up Exodus or Leviticus or something? It's a conversation that you just you can't walk into without the other conversation partners. Is that kind of thing that is it, 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 it you don't get it until you hear the whole uh, the whole conversation? Is that helpful or no? It's I don't know. To me, it's there's a conversation that takes place every time there is a Torah study. There's a beautiful essay. I'm having trouble finding it. it I know it exists and I've seen it online. And I know I've also, you know, copied it onto somewhere into my email, but I can't find it now. But it is by far the most beautiful talk I have ever seen, the most poetic talk. It was given by uh, not someone who was my Rosh Hashiva or my rabbi, but he was my father-in-law, my late father-in-law's rabbi, and he, Rabbi Soloveitchik from Yeshiva University. Rabbi Soloveitchik, Rabbi Joseph uh Soloveitchik passed away back in 93. He gave a talk in the early 70s. He was at a Jewish, some kind of family occasion, and he was asked to speak. And he described the way he had a very illustrious, famous grandfather who was a great rabbinic scholar in Europe, passed away in 1918. And he was talking about how he studied with his grandfather. And he was talking about the experience of studying Torah is not one of just reading a book, but of having a conversation with many people around the table. He said, I see myself sitting down about to give a class and Maimonides is sitting at the table across from me. And next to Maimonides is sitting, you know, another famous rabbi who frequently disagreed with Maimonides. And then who walks into the room? My grandfather walks into the room because he's going to defend Maimonides from his detractors. And he sees a conversation taking place. The one who originated the conversation was, as you put it, God speaking. But what the Torah is, is not just a matter of hearing God's word. It's God's word, which started a conversation. And it's a beautiful conversation that takes place with, depending on how much you know, you can have three people at the table, 10 people at the table, you know, all in one book, 15 people. And there's this, this beautiful conversation, this beautiful relationship is taking place. But it's not just a conversation between rabbis. God is there as well. And various prophets who have had their say on the topic at hand are there as well. And there's this idea that I think he was articulating in this talk he gave where you have, where you should try if you knew what the person looked like, if even if the person has passed away, to envision that they're actually speaking those words. And if you'd never met them or there were, the, you know, they were alive before there were pictures or paintings taken of them, then you imagine that the conversation is a real one. Meaning the ideal that it says in the Torah that God spoke to Moses face to face is something or mouth to mouth, the way it's phrased in one place, is the idea that there's a real conversation going on. And books, even though if I showed you, you know, with my camera, all the books that I have here, I adore books, but books are really seen as second best. Books are merely the record of something that should have taken place face to face. And it was only when the Jewish people began to grow and spread out across the world that it was seen as a concession to write many of these conversations down so that they not be forgotten. 
But uh, when I think, when I come to my office here, or I have my library at home, or when I come to shul, what I want to do with the people who come to shul is share with them another conversation that I was witness to, or another conversation that I had, or that I heard from these other people. So I try very much to share a story, not the kind of story that comes in a book that says, you know, stories you can tell in your sermons, you know, or like jokes you can tell in your sermons, but things that I actually either witnessed or that I identify with. I might even try to pull in something from something that actually happened to me to let them know I'm bringing you into this very real conversation that took place and that is still taking place. And one of the greatest difficulties I have, and I don't begrudge anyone this difficulty, is when services are over, and then we go and we have like the kiddush, like refreshments after services on Shabbos, and people come over to me, and they want to share with me a continuation of that conversation. You know, they they want to add to it, and they say, oh, I had a conversation along the same lines, and they're just extending the relationship, you know, to, you know, into the future, it's a wonderful thing. The reason I say it's difficult is because everyone wants to talk with me and I want to talk with everyone after services. So it's very difficult to just let one person tell me about their experience when the room is filled with 50 or 60 people. But, you know, thank God for that kind of problem. I, I only wish to have more of that problem. So you I, know, but the, the idea is we extend that conversation. I'll share with them something and then they can share back. Let me ask you this. So a lot of people I know, and they're almost exclusively people who have left Christianity, um, they, it, it, part of the, the alumni of the Christian church, um, and they've gone on and graduated, they think, or whatever, or left, left you know, school. And, you know, and, and in general, the people, and there's an increasing number, they're adversarial to any kind of faith. And I hear this all the time. They say, what I love about Judaism is you don't have to be believing God, that it's so great. Like it, none of it matters. You know, I mean, you, I, I'm sure you've heard this, right? Like this, there's this kind of stereotype that Judaism is like, I, yeah. it can be religion without God. Uh, and, and, and that's just fine. I mean, how do you, do you, have you heard it? And what do you think of it? I've heard that hundreds of times, especially on the app <laughs> that we are both on. I don't like that particular phrasing. I understand why they say it, but I think it's the result of a misunderstanding. One doesn't have to, do anything to be Jewish, but that's because being Jewish is simply being a member of the family. If you are a member of the family, then you are a member of the family regardless of what you do. And that is something that people have trouble wrapping their heads around when they compare Jewishness with other faiths, because the Jewish people, Jewry, is not exclusively a faith community. It's a community, meaning it's an extended family but, but belonging, that belonging regardless of faith. Belonging doesn't necessarily necessitate necessitate. Uh, it, belonging doesn't necess, necessitate. Sorry, believing in that sense, right? Believing, like, right? Know. Now they should, but meaning they're still a member of the family. Meaning, if I have a brother and he's my brother, I choose that because I don't have any brothers. So if I have a brother and my brother was said, declared himself to be an atheist. I would say, well, that's a shame, but you're still my brother. So that's all that people mean. And I think that has morphed into some funny ideas that people have that, oh, you can be Jewish while being an atheist. 
And I say that that is an incorrect corollary, if you will, of the idea that you still are Jewish even if you don't do the mitzvot, meaning that you you still have that identity. I would say that's the better way to phrase it. And frankly, it's one of those things that has confused many, many people. I, I've heard all the various misconceptions I've heard about Judaism are rooted in that confusion that people have about what it means to be Jewish. Is it a faith community or is it some kind of, or is it a national ethnic group or is it something else? It's something else entirely. It sort of exists in that Venn diagram, you know, oval there between, you know, family community and, and religion. And therefore, isn't this people don't know what to do with that. Isn't this what's so pre-modern about Judaism? And I don't say that in a parochial sense or like judgmental sense. I mean, for most of history, people had their gods. They had their worship. They had their, and they were a tribe, right? That would be normal. Right. Judaism has existed for centuries amongst other tribes with a different deity and a different That's way right. of life. And so I think moder- like it, it's just the whole thrust of late modernity uh, or maybe call it post-modernity, whatever we call it. it, just this confounds people. It's not even modernity. I mean, it's a modernity that goes back 2,000 years. I think Christianity, the reality of Christianity, that this was a group of a religious view that transcended national identity is something that threw Jews off, meaning it confused people about what Jews were. Because like you said, in biblical times, well, if you were part of the nation of Moab, then your god was uh, Chemosh. And if you were a Philistine, then your god was Dagon. And if you were from, you know, whatever, in Egypt you had your god or, you know, pantheon of gods and so on. And I think what happened was that the, the Jewish perception of God is that, yes, there was a tribal link, meaning the Jewish people had this connection to God, but it wasn't just our local deity. He was the God who created the heavens and the earth. So when that idea spread in various ways in the centuries that followed, and eventually Christianity ran with it and said that God is not has no national identity at all, meaning no national affiliation, if you will, then Jew, the fact that Jews still maintained that is something that threw a lot of people off. And then Islam, I think, further expanded the idea and made the idea that, oh, no, we're an ethnic group, but we allow people from outside the ethnicity to join the group, but they can only join it through the channel of accepting the God of Israel, right? There was something on Twitter a while back that someone was complaining that they wanted to convert to Judaism, but no one would let them convert to Judaism um, if they didn't, you know, accept, you know, the tenets of Judaism. It's like, how come all these Jews are atheists and you accept them as Jews, but I can't come from the outside if I'm an atheist? So, yeah, it's it's one of those uh, conundrums. Do, that, you, do, you, uh, do you ever look at Christians and Jews as like adolescents that got the keys to the car before they had a driver's license? And kind of drove. I'm not sure what you mean by that. They drove around in the car before they really took the driver's test. Like they grabbed the they grabbed the tour. They grabbed the tradition. They just said, "Hey, we're going with it, man." And <laughs> and I, I mean, is this because you get along well with with Christians and 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 Muslims? I I, mean, I just see you interact with people. But do you ever just look and say, "Gosh, if you just read the book, you're driving around without your driver's manual." 
who that the Christians and Muslims are? I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, because they're, they're – Flesh out what you mean. I'm because not, I don't want to answer you because then – Because they're kind of – the whole movements are built on your sacred text, right? And so, right. so these are movements that claim – I mean the academic term for this is supersessionism, right? You come along and say we're, we're, – We've got the better revelation, and we're and we're taking the Torah with us, and kind of. I mean, these like adolescent kids or something. How do you view people that use your sacred text, right, with all sincerity? Uh, right. And, and, and I, yeah, yeah, I take my uh, answer. Maimonides wrote a piece about this, which was actually censored, and you couldn't find it in his writings. And it would sort of reappeared in the past 50 years. <laughs> he spoke about this in the 1100s. And he had some harsh words to say about Christianity and Islam. He said, how could God allow this to happen? He said that you have people and they think they're, they're doing the right thing, but they've caused Jews, you know, centuries of harm. And he's writing this in the late 1100s. So he had, he took an amazing, what I guess nowadays they would call a meta view of the whole thing. And he said, for all of the, you know, theological faults of those religions from a Jewish perspective, they have provided the world with something that did not exist before, which is that the world at large is talking about topics that they otherwise would not have been talking about. Meaning the idea that the Torah has a universal value, meaning for the entire human race is something that would have been possible to ignore if you just took a Jewish view of it. You could not that Judaism by itself doesn't have what to say about the human race, but it's possible for a Jew to just be involved in his own world of keeping kosher, keeping Shabbos, keeping the holidays, doing what he needs to do, praying in the morning, afternoon, and evening, and even though the words he's saying in his prayers, and even though many of the commandments that he's doing at different times of the year have a universal relevance, but it's possible to forget about all of that universal relevance and just remain parochial. And what it is that Christianity and Islam have provided to the world is this idea that there are ideas here, which... If you want, I'll call someone famous called the ethical monotheism. I think it goes a little bit beyond that, but let's just call it that for now. And we're able to introduce the idea that the ideal of ethical monotheism is something that should be applied worldwide and is not just a parochial cute Jewish thing that, that Jews do. Yeah, there's a book by uh, uh, Franz Rosenzweig. An incredible book uh, called The Star of Redemption. It's a hard book. So for our listeners, I would recommend finding, if if you want to pick it up, it's great, but it it takes a little, a little work. But at the end of that book, he says that the job, the, the vocation, because Rosenstein almost became a Christian and I know decided. Amazing story. Many Jews know about him very well because he was made very famous, uh, you know, at that time, like after World War One, after World War Two, as someone who came very close to, you know, Jewish observance and appreciation of Jewish ideals. Yeah, yeah and, and and he says at the end of that book, he says the job, the vocation, the calling of the Christian is to take the God of Israel to the world, and the job, the calling of the Jew is to convert the inner pagan in every Christian. Is that is that does that resonate? 
I, I, I like that phrase of in the inner pagan. You know, it's funny. Like, I, I've seen that language in some Jewish texts, you know, but usually it's been understood, meaning people be afraid that it sounds offensive. But I, I, li- I like that. I mean, the idea, I think the idea that, that people, you sometimes hear about this, even though I don't fully understand the scientific depth of it. People refer to the grand unified theory of everything, you know, like theory of everything, grand unified theory. That is the scientific way of saying, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. <laughs> the idea that there is one God is exactly that. Meaning, in religious language, we say there is only one God. In scientific language, the same idea applied in scientific language is there is one grand unified theory. It means the universe can make sense because it is one universe, meaning it has one law. And the reason it has one law is because it's one creation with, with one creator. I think that's the, uh, that's important. So I think any, what we mean when we criticize paganism or heathenism or polytheism is this idea that they see the world as fractured. The stories from the Iliad or the Odyssey or from Greek mythology are descriptions of the nature of the fracture. But inherently, it's about the world being broken. And, and, inherently and, broken. And a world not created by accident, right, but by intention and love. I mean, that's what you get. By in intention the... and a singular intention. Yes, yeah. Which is the idea. And that's why I I get so frustrated when I listen to some of these famous atheists who talk and everyone thinks they're so smart. And maybe they are smart in their own fields, but when they speak about atheism, the argument is just purely, like, is the most childish. I uh, Two people who I heard, one of whom I respect, the other one not so much. But when they speak about religion, I feel like they're talking on a kindergarten level. Like one famous fellow phrased it. He said, you know, I'm not so far from uh, a monotheist myself. A monotheist is someone who said, well, there are not a million gods. There's only one God. So they went down from a million to one. All I'm doing is saying there's no God. So I'm going down from one to zero. So the leap from a million to one is far greater than the leap from one to zero. And when I heard that, I said, you fool. The idea is not that there isn't a million gods, that there's only one God. The idea is that there is one universe with one plan, telos, you know, and that the world is purposeful, singularly purposeful in that way. So to say that there is no God is really to say that there are a million gods. Meaning because what you're saying is that there are different forces that, that are at work and those forces conflict with one another. So to be an atheist is really to be a polytheist, and, meaning and, because it's looking at the world as being fractured and broken and full of unresolvable conflict. And it's more the right than just, I mean, t- intention and tell us is part of it, right? But also love. I mean, this, this intention isn't, um, you know, Deism or Bette Midler's from a distance, God. It's the God that is in 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 the mud, so to speak, in the Book of Genesis, earthy. This is a love project. I mean, that that the intention is. Not, I think a lot of people seem to subscribe to this spy in the sky theology that God sees everything you do and He's waiting to shame you or something. It's not right. I mean, it's it. 
Isn't this about the intention is loving the way in, you teach your kids intention? Yeah, it's a verse in Psalms in Hebrew, Olam Chesed Yibaneh, that he's creating the world of kindness, the world out of kindness, meaning out of a purpose of kindness, right? I, I can't remember which psalm it is. It's in the 80s, I think. Anyway, the idea is that he, he is creating the world, that they're, meaning because he, he wishes to give. Right? In rabbinic writings, they say it is the nature of that which is good to give good, meaning to bestow good. So even though ultimately we can't, you know, figure out when God does things, there's no questioning it because he's the source. So any reason we give, the reason comes after the source. However, the the idea is wanting to manifest more good uh, in the world. Absolutely. So it's just all about the giving of uh, of that good. And you see that in people. I know people, they walk into a room and it's very clear as soon as they walk into the room, they just sort of make a calculation. How can I make things better in this room that I'm in? You know, my uh, my father-in-law passed away almost three years ago now. And at his funeral, my brother-in-law shared something that was amazing because I had never heard my father-in-law say this, but I, I saw him do it. And it was just, when my brother-in-law revealed that it was intentional, it was so intentional that he told his son, my brother-in-law, that he was doing this. And it was just beautiful to hear my brother-in-law say this. He said, he sees his purpose when he, when he goes somewhere that somehow that space with some of the people who are within that space are better off because he was there or after he was there than they were before he was there. And that was just stunning. And I saw this, you know, my, he'd come over for Passover and we'd have a lot of people at our Seder, let's say, and he would find a way that we had other guests at the Seder. He'd enhance their lives, make them feel better, you know, show an interest. Somehow things are better than they were beforehand. So I see that when God creates the world, you know, there's this language of him in Jewish mysticism of like creating an empty space that is not aware of God and then inserting himself back into that space so that people are enriched by, by God's presence there. So I loathe natural theology by training, but the older I get, the more I'm, I'm warming up to it. The idea that outside of scripture and special revelation, you know, God speaking and, and traditions around that speaking that you could just kind of walk around and see some things about God without that vocabulary, without the training. Uh, I loathe it, uh, but I'm warming up to it. So, um, so I'm writing a book right now and, uh, I, I want to read something to you. If that's okay. Please. It's very short. Um, so this is my attempt to sort of explain biblical faith. Somebody on, on our app called me an Abrahamic supremacist recently. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but whatever. But I like the Bible, okay. and I like uh, I find the stories there that God's spoken. Um, and I can just speak for myself, mostly with Christianity and Judaism, although I, I'm getting closer with some friends in Islam. But I just know mostly when I've been a guest at the table, it's been at Jewish tables. So right. this is what I got. And then you tell me how maybe how you is this something have. you wrote? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this. Okay book is dedicated to and i'll leave her nameless um you know her but uh uh 
The spiritual path is life, death, confusion, and connection. There's also hope. Hope is the most basic and the most fragile. It's the beginning and the end of all things on the spiritual road. If you're hoping, you're probably thriving. If not, go to the postscript. So there'll be a postscript. The best teacher I ever had told me that in introductions were like killing your throat. Kind of have to do it uh, if you need to before speaking, but do it too much and you lose the point. What I'm trying to do is speak to a friend to give her a gift. Hmm. She's given me a lot of them and continues to do so. Somewhere along the line, I realized that she had a generosity and a connection to the universe that was all over uh, everyone she touched. I, w- I was one of the lucky ones caught in the wake of the wave of who she is. But at some point, it seemed like she wanted words to make sense of her connection with the universe and her actions in it. These thoughts are an attempt to give back some of what she's given to me. I think she's smart enough and connected enough to the wider world to write this stuff down in a way that would be shared with you, the reader. If you don't love it, like it, understand it, that's okay. There's so many on-ramps to the spiritual road pathway whatever you call it if it's not yours no worries when you find it you'll know it so that's my intro which is really rough i read it last night uh it's an attempt to sort of speak what i've learned from the bible and the conversation partners in it to a friend of mine that doesn't speak the language fluently um but but wants in is that how would you invite someone that doesn't speak the language to the conversation that is centered in the God where the, where the God of the Bible is the main character. Hmm. I think what I would do is probably what we all do, even if we don't do it intentionally is find out what language they are speaking and then to find, to use their language and to translate it into their language. I've seen, you know, this is the way that I explain. Uh, there's a little, there's a story at the beginning of the book of Exodus that has, troubled me because I was trying to figure out how it fit in the whole plot. You know, Moses comes to Pharaoh for the first time with his brother Aaron, right? And he says, so says, you know, the God of the Hebrews, you know, free my people, you know, send out my people so they can serve me. And Pharaoh says, I'd never heard of him. I don't know who God is. I don't know who he is. And I'm not sending the Jews out. And then Moses says, the God of the Hebrews appeared to us. Let us go out three days into the desert and serve him. And then Pharaoh says, you people are just lazy. I'm going to give you extra work. You have to, you know, find your own straw for the bricks. So something happened. I think most people miss this detail. It's an essential detail in the story. Moses gave two speeches. His first speech was, so says God. And Pharaoh dismisses him entirely. He says, never heard of him. Once Pharaoh says, never heard of him, Moses stops talking. He says, okay, I'm not going to tell you what God says because you're saying you never heard of God. I will now speak on behalf of the Jewish people. The Jewish people are requesting a three-day vacation. Then Pharaoh says, they're making such a request. He then punishes them with providing extra straw, right? That they have to get their own straw. So what happens next? So this is chapter six. What happens next is that The people are demoralized, and God tells Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to free the Jews. Say, so says God, free the Jews. Moses says, the people won't listen to me. Why will Pharaoh listen to me? He says, so after a little bit of back and forth, God tells Moses, you go 
Tell you, you, I'm appoint. I'm appointing you. Don't worry about the Jews accepting you. I'm appointing you. What happens next? Before the ten plagues, the famous ten plagues story starts. What happens then is God, uh, Moses and Aaron show up with a stick that they turn into a serpent, right? And then their stick eats their sticks, right? Famous story. Why is that story necessary? Once God tells Moses to dazzle. Moses with the plague that tells Moses to dazzle Pharaoh with the plagues. Let the plagues get started, right? Turn the water into blood, like do all that. Why have this intermission of the stick turning into a snake? That is not one of the 10 plagues. It's just there. The way I, my test for a biblical story is if it was taken out, would you notice? If you had gone straight from God telling Moses to speak to Pharaoh and gone straight to the water, the Nile turning into blood, then that would be good enough. I'm totally like this with the book of Proverbs. I'm like, it's I, every time I read it, it's like, if a guy stays out late at night drinking, he's not going to run the business well. I, did I need that? We could cut that out. <laughs> did I need that? Exactly. So this is my answer. Moses had to have that story with the stick turning into snake into a snake because he had to establish himself to Pharaoh who never heard of God before as somebody who Pharaoh can have a conversation with so that he said listen I'm talking the same language you know your your corner store magician tricks meaning fine sticks turning into snakes whatever you want to say whether it was real magic or the, the sleight of hand so Rabbi, the point it's, is, it's what you're saying I'm talking pharaoh's language when, and, so that's how I'm answering your question you're talking someone would come and they've never heard of god they've never heard of whatever you come to terms you talk a similar language and then in that language you can go places whatever that person's language is so I want to extrapolate, but I'm not going to do it and have a whole class about how a new rabbi establishes himself in the shul. Magic tricks. I mean, you just go beat David Blaine. But how would you <laughs> it, it, in Cleveland, Ohio, in greater metro, you know, basically you're, you're, in a, you're in blue state America. I mean, Cleveland. I mean, it's it's, you know, urban and probably mostly Democrat in our tribal political sort of self-identification. You don't have to drive far to red country, but you're kind of in blue country. How would you talk about the faith and the God uh, that's still speaking? Uh, how, how would you translate it to folks around you that just can't tune in on that wavelength? This is why I love clubhouse. And this is why I love talking to you because that's the kind of question that <clears throat> nobody is asking me. And I've created a bubble for myself and my family and my community, where that kind of question just doesn't get asked. Meaning people aren't thinking using those words because it's just something that they uh, that we take for granted. And I wouldn't mind, and that's why I like meeting people who will ask those will ask those questions. So that and it's a question that I haven't been asked in a very long time. I would answer the way I answered a uh, a common friend of ours who claims to be an atheist, and if you, I'm sure you remember this conversation. I said, I don't even understand what atheism is on a philosophical level, because when we speak of God, we mean life. We mean the source of life, meaning the proactive creator of life, the giver of life. And therefore, for someone to say, well, what does that have to do? What does God have to do with me? to me, would be translated as, what does life have to do with me? Like, what do you mean, what does life have to do with you? You're alive. And if you're alive, then 
you should see your life as having some kind of meaning. Not only some kind of source, like a source of life, but some sort of end goal for life. So let's talk about that. What is life about? You, you want to be alive. Why do you want to be alive? You know, why do you want to live forever? Right? We all want to live forever. Like, there's a comedian who had a quip I heard years ago. I didn't hear it originally, but I read it somewhere. The line was, I want to live forever. So far, so good. You know, like, the idea, which is, like, such a clever line, because, right, a person doesn't see himself as being mortal. Like, death comes upon a person, but you want to be immortal in one sense or another. You appreciate that you're alive. You want to live more. Your body insists on living more, even if you don't care for it, meaning the fact that you just keep on breathing and your blood keeps on pumping through your veins. You want to live. So let's think about that. You have your life. You have your family's life. You have your people's life. You care. Along with life comes the caring for life. And you just expand the conversation, I think, in that direction. The way many people will do that is by finding out because, let's face it, kids don't know why they like to live. They know the things about life that they enjoy. I would see my father-in-law, who was a master educator, do this, where he would talk to some, like, 14-year-old, you know, kid, and he'd say, like, so what, what do you like? You know, like, so sometimes the kid would say, I like reading. Okay, what do you like reading, right? And they talk about a book series that, you know, they like, they fancy. Okay. For others, it might be some kind of hobby or some kind of sport, meaning, but then they realize, why do they like those things? It makes their brain feel alive in the case of a book. It makes their body feel alive when they're involved in some kind of sport or hobby, right? It makes their intellect or their their hands feel alive if they're involved in building of, of some kind of thing. Life is self-justifying, right? You don't have to say, well, why do you want to be alive? People want to be alive. That's it. They'll do everything they can to live as meaningfully and as long uh, as they can. So God is the source of that. So to me, for someone to say, I don't believe in God, is as absurd of a statement as saying, I don't believe in life. You know, it's like, remember that line? I think you shared it with me. I thought it was the most brilliant line ever regarding this topic about uh, some pastor who was asked if he believes in women preachers yeah he said, he said how does it go he said they asked this guy interviewing for a job if he believed in women's ordination he said believe in it i've seen it done yes i love that because it's not a matter of believing like it's there like it happens right the only question is what do you think about it but it's not a question of believing or not so i believe in god so sometimes people say well yeah but I, of course, there's a source for life and there's life, but who says that it's God? I, to me, again, that's another absurd question. What do you mean? God is the word that we give to that source. It's not like who says it's God. Maybe it's Frank. Okay, then Frank is God, meaning it's it's the word that we give for for the source. So you appreciate the source. And I think not just the source. And to me, this is a very big deal. The source and the goal. Maimonides, the, when he has, he has like in his theology, he developed like 13 uh, principles of faith. 
One of his principles of faith is not just that there's a God who's a creator, but specifically the way he phrases it, that he is the first and the last, which I know has a Christian variation. But the first and the last, the last part is important. Because to say God is the first is easy enough. Meaning you could just say that even with the theory of evolution, something that started it off, the Big Bang, and so on. What's more important theologically, or I'll say just as important theologically, is to say that God is the last, meaning there's an end, meaning there's a goal, there's a purpose, you know, for living. Not just like, okay, well, he created the world, and every so often a crazy mutation takes place, and then something else happens, and then you have, you know, humanity. You know, when you said that, I just was overwhelmed with emotion. Uh, I thought of the Special Olympics, which I volunteered for. And there are people <laughs> that are just huggers. They stand Hugger. at the finish line as these disabled athletes, some of which are amazing, right? Like accomplished, that, but they have these disabilities. And the huggers are the heroes. I mean, the people uh. that embrace... The people struggling with all their disabilities to the finish line. I feel like that's what you get when you have God not just as the first, but the last. Like God's probably like the ultimate hugger as we all run the race, uh. struggling with our own afflictions and disabilities and 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 hangups. Uh, that's what it, God is probably a very generous telos at the end, right? Yeah, because what else? The point is not to punish, right? The point is to make it more meaningful. Well, Rabbi, I uh, this has been a great conversation, and we're friends, so you know it. It it never ceases to amaze me at how uh, new our conversations can be. And uh, today, I am going to read "The Bush Is Still Burning." I'm going to pick up that book by Lloyd Ogilvy. So, thanks. Interesting. Uh, uh, thank you for that imagery. Because, yeah. You know, the Jews have a distinct tradition. When it comes to what the burning bush was a metaphor for, that I, th- I think people don't uh, might not realize, like uh, the traditional rabbinic take on the burning bush, is that the bush represented the Jewish people lowly and oppressed as they were in Egypt at the time of that revelation, and that the fire was consuming them, but the bush was not consumed. The idea that no matter how much the Jewish people were going through, that it, they were not taking a licking, meaning the fire was difficult with them, but God was with them, meaning the fire in the metaphor represents God, meaning that God is with the Jewish people even in their lowly, tormented state. You know, so that's it's an idea of hope that no matter how low, no matter how difficult, no matter how awful things get, that God's presence represented by the fire is is still there. Right. Yeah, and so. and Rabbi, I'll tell you what. Uh, for our listeners, if they're anywhere near Cleveland, Ohio, they can look you up. All your stuff is in the show notes because I know the bush is still burning there at your shul, and it's great to have you yeah. on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm sure we'll talk later, but <laughs> it was a pleasure to talk to you now. Always a pleasure. Okay, we'll talk. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. Go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode. 
on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>